Welcome to episode 481 of the CyberLaw Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express don't reflect the views of our family, our clients, our institutions, really friends, pets, anybody who cares about us would really probably wishes we wouldn't say these things. Joining me for the news roundup, Kurt Sanger, former Deputy General Counsel for U.S. Cyber Command and founder and director of Integrated Cybersecurity Partners. Adam Hickey, former Deputy Assistant AG of the National Security Division at the Justice Department and a Southern District of New York Assistant U.S. Attorney. Mark McCarthy, who teaches technology, law, and policy at Georgetown and also does policy at Brookings. He's the author of a book we're going to talk to him about at the end of this, Regulating Digital Industries, How Public Oversight Can Encourage Competition, Protect Privacy, and Ensure Free Speech. I'm not sure I'm going to agree with him that all of that can happen, but uh, that'll just make it a more fun interview. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS. The host and chief provocateur for today's program, Kurt, I want to start with you. People have been saying about the Russian cyber attacks, especially in Ukraine, that they were a surprising damp squib, that the Russians didn't seem to be able to coordinate their hack attacks with their kinetic attacks. It was just kind of random. There's a report out that suggests that they may be getting their act together. Do you think that's true? It's possible because it appears that their access to the system that they act, an electric utility, that they got that access and were able to operate two weeks earlier. So the fact that it came at the same time as the missile attacks indicates that they were trying to combine arms, so to speak, in this new, you know, not land, air, and sea together, but land and cyber together. So it's an interesting question. Why would they do this now? Are they testing it for something they want to do later on? Were they proving the concept? Were they wanting to damage the electricity or diminish it just for a period of time, thinking that they were going to occupy that territory later and use the electricity for themselves? They wanted to have it available and not destroy it. Because normally the tools that you use in a cyber operation are bespoke and expensive and a long time in the making. And if you have some other way of affecting the system, like you might with a missile, uh, you'd want to go with the missile if all you wanted to do was destroy it. Well, so Mandian says this looks as though it was a missile attack supplemented by a cyber attack designed to make things worse, make it harder to fix things, and maybe cover their tracks. They don't tell us actually which part of the grid was being attacked. So it's sort of hard to know how effective it was. You know, you would think that after a year and a half of war, they would have gotten better at coordinating. But I guess I, I come away from this thinking, okay, so coordinated cyber attack along with a kinetic attack is worse than a kinetic attack, but not that much worse. Then you'd need to know more about the situation on the ground rather than just the cybersecurity situation. So yes, I mean, in terms of a proof of concept, they've at least got this one under their belts and maybe they want to use it in some other situation later on. All right. And we should be imitating it to the extent that it's a workable tool. All right, Mark, the EU is engaged in negotiating the AI Act. And I think if there's anything that illustrates the old Silicon Valley rule that too early is worse than too late, it's the embarrassment that just when they think they're putting the finishing touches on the AI Act, they aren't even sure whether they're going to have one. Yeah, I mean, they pride themselves on acting quickly. But even, even this wasn't so quick. The original commission proposal was back in April of 2021. And that had to be thrown out and, and kind of completely revamped to deal with ChatGPT. And now it turns out that the quick fix on ChatGPT has got France and Germany all uh, upset. That's the quick summary. I mean, the, the first proposal, though, felt like it was going in the right direction. <laughs> it was saying that you, we're going to regulate AI on the basis of the, the use of the AI systems, and we're going to focus ourselves on the ones that are most risky. And we're not going to focus so much on the underlying models, but we're going to focus on AI as used in particular applications. And Parliament was pretty far along on endorsing that approach. But as you say, chat GPT changed all that. And Parliament said, well, wait a minute. You know, if this goes through, then 
we won't have a regulatory structure for a foundation model like GPT. Maybe we'll, we'll capture chat GPT, the application, but we won't get the underlying model. So we have to change that. And the way they changed that was to begin to impose obligations on the models as such. And, and one of them was to ensure that the model itself was adequate in terms of its performance, its predictability, its interoperability, its courageability, its safety, and its cybersecurity. And, and the model had to be registered in an EU database. And, and the generative stuff had to be subject to additional requirements. So that was the parliament's reaction to GPT and chat GPT. But as you say, in the trilogue that followed, the national governments objected. And we, I thought we were on the way to a compromise because the way it worked out, it looked as though they were going to simply tier all of the regulations for the, the foundation models and, and apply them only to the most dangerous and the most powerful model. By which you mean the most American models. The most American. And I thought that was sort of the way things were going because the foundation models had to live with these objections. But if you tiered them, then only the, uh, the U.S. systems would be subject to those requirements. Well, that blew up last week when one of the, uh, one of the technical committees got together, the Committee on Telecom, and it said, wait a minute, I'm not sure we should regulate foundation models as such. And as you point out, a couple of European companies are behind this, Mistral over in France and Aleph Alpha in Germany. They figure, you know, we're going to be dealing with uh, measures that are just as good as GPT-4. And so we'd be subject to these onerous requirements. And so what we want to do is back ourselves out of that somehow. And this tiered approach that you're suggesting doesn't work. So the Spanish presidency said, okay, I guess we'll stop the tiered approach. We'll just won't regulate foundation models at all. The parliamentarian said that's a deal breaker and left the meeting. Yeah. So it looks as though the group is going to meet again tomorrow, but I, I don't think this issue is going to get settled at the technical level. It's going to be booted up to the political level for resolution. So what, what do I think is going on? I think it's just, this is just the usual 11th hour maneuvering. Each side is saying, ah, I'm going to walk away from the table if I don't get my way. I think at the end of the day, the foundation models will get subjected to some procedural rules, like red teaming and transparency. But it's going to be light enough so that the European startups can cover these regulatory costs with another round of fundraising. So I think that's where it's going to wind up. My own sense is that this is all a tempest in a teapot because regulation at the model level is largely irrelevant. I mean, these systems can't be made safe at that level. I'm not even sure what it means to say that right. a foundation model is safe for all uses. It's like saying electricity is safe for all uses or regression analysis is safe for all uses. All, all the risks and the benefits really emerge at the application level. And that's where the regulation should focus. And that's where the government can really protect people against the dangers and risks of, of AI. But I think that's unacceptable to the European enthusiasts because that means that they don't get to regulate the American companies in the cradle. They have to wait until the American companies produce a, an application, a model that does something in particular. And then they regulate that. But by that point, they're only regulating the use of that model inside Europe. And it is an entirely thinkable thing for uh, OpenAI to say, yeah, we're not going to sell that model in Europe. And, and OpenAI has suggested that yeah. already. But I, I think the new thing is that they hoped they could get the U.S. companies without getting the European companies. And that idea seems to have fallen through. So what they're going to have to do is propose a really thin layer of regulation on the foundation models that even the European startups can meet. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, free popcorn as far as I'm concerned. Okay, Adam, this is kind of an amazing story. A company that makes basically a social media application is sued and in order to get out from under the lawsuit, they they 
not only pay money, but they just say, fine, we'll just shut down. We'll go out of business. Kind of remarkable. Yeah. So the service was Omegle, started by an 18-year-old in his basement in 2009 and grows to have as many as 50 million visitors Mm. last month. But the way it worked is a kind of video chat roulette, right? Where you're you're looking to meet other people and maybe that appeals to you during the pandemic, but it also appeals to child predators. Well, if you're an 18 year old in your basement during the uh, uh, pandemic, uh, you know what he was doing down there. So it's not a surprise. (laughs) Um, Anyway, there were, you know, hundreds of thousands of incidents of child sex abuse reported to Nick Mick tied to the site in 2022. And so I gather from reading the press coverage that uh, a woman who was victimized by one of the people she chatted with ultimately brings a suit against the platform claiming that they failed to design the platform appropriately, that they're liable civilly. And I gather the motion to dismiss under Section 230 fails. And so rather than go to trial, the founder basically put out a blog post saying, you know what, I'm, I'm done with this. I can't protect the... Why, why do you think it failed under 230? Was it the idea that they were not stopping sex trafficking? I guess that must have been the idea. Yeah, that it had to have been something other than the content, right? But I, the way the press coverage frames it is that's about the design of the product as opposed to the content on the service. And, and what they, the product basically allowed you to connect to people and you just, you connected to somebody and there you were looking into the camera and they were looking at you. And so, yes, not surprisingly, a lot of the people you ended up looking at weren't wearing any clothes, but none of that by itself, I would have thought would have justified this. The the problem here was this young child, I think she was 11 when it started, was persuaded to do some nude photographs that were then blackmail material. And it was just awful. Um, Yes. But blaming the company, this is a much bigger step than we would have seen four years ago. I agree. And, you know, this news comes out the same week as a number of other sort of a raft of headlines around the general issue of trust and safety. There was a whistleblower a former employee of Meta who testified before Congress related to studies he had done that he claimed were not given sufficient support from management to reduce effects on self-esteem and and morale among teen users on Facebook. I do think it's, it's important to try to disaggregate what we care about and what expectations we have of social media companies. I mean, I think the first example we talked about involving actual sex abuse does seem to me just to be distinguishable from self-esteem. And the platforms will respond to clear signals from public or Congress. But if the signal is don't make me feel bad when I use social media, I mean, I feel bad when I looked at LinkedIn. So I think we have to be a little clearer about what the expectation is for the platform. And you don't even have my comments. (laughs) I don't have any comments, Stuart. That's why I feel bad. I think part of it has to be a buyer beware approach, although I I wonder why 11-year-olds probably shouldn't be on a chat roulette type service. Yeah. But it also may come down to controlling how much access, how much time they spend on their phones and the like. Same week, there's also, you know, there's a coalition of them called the Tech Coalition trying to launch a pilot program designed around sharing indicators of child sexual abuse material or CSAM. That makes good sense to me. And it's the kind of private initiative that is likely to help facilitate disruptive activity. Of course, end-to-end encryption will also make it more challenging for them to know what's happening on their platform or to help law enforcement counter it. Yep. I am a little puzzled why all of the stories are about Facebook. I mean, by definition, Facebook is only used by people that nobody wants to see naked. And, you know, Instagram, there are young people who use Instagram, but TikTok is by far a more popular and, and maybe even Snapchat for all I know. It's it's weird that I guess this is just the media is so used to making Facebook the villain that they just can't get enough stories in which it's Meta's fault that the teenagers feel bad about themselves. That's an interesting point. All right, Mark, the EU, having learned nothing from the latest debacle, uh, has another set of rules out on political ads. And I'm not sure that this is going to take effect immediately, but the reg is done, as I understand it. The, the commission proposed something a long time ago, in November of 2021, and it went through the trilogue. And, and they finally reached an agreement in principle last week, the commission, the parliament, and the national governments. They still have to work out the fine print, but it's basically done. And it's not a crazy piece of regulation. The idea is that 
political advertisements have to be labeled. They must indicate who paid for them, how much, what's the election that's at stake, and uh, whether they've been targeted. In fact, targeting is is the one area that's a little problematic in the uh, in the proposal. It says targeted targeting of political ads will be permitted only if the data was collected directly from the data subject, and the data subject has to give explicit and separate consent for its use for political advertising. That's tough enough, but then then they go on to say you can't use sensitive data for targeting. So ethnicity religion, sexual orientation. Political views, if I remember right. Or... <laughs> and so, I mean, it looks as though all inferred data is banned as a basis for targeting. So like geographical location, Aye. it's hard to see how targeting can actually take place under this proposal. And I think this reflects a deep suspicion that targeting based on personal information is somehow manipulative in itself. And so there are pretty serious barriers put in place to prevent it. There's some other things which are designed to prevent manipulation. The the sponsored ads from outside the EU will be prohibited months before the election, three months before the election. They throw a lot of information into public repositories. And and that's a pretty good idea. Yeah, but you're right. If you say you can't use personal data and you can't target on things like political views, if this is a way of saying you can't do it, we're going to try to make this completely uneconomic. And it's not as though the social media has ever been enthusiastic about these ads. At various times, some social media companies have said, yeah, we don't really want any. We're not going to do it. Yeah, that's right. Remember, the U.S. had a proposal like this in 2017, the honest ads emerged. And it's sunk without a trace in in the Senate. Uh, Klobuchar and Warner and Graham reintroduced the bill this year, but they're just going through the motions and no action has been taken on it. I don't know why. I mean, you've got political candidate rules for broadcasting right now, and it seems to me obvious that extending that to online would make some sense. I don't see why you've got a burden targeting the way the Europeans have, but some disclosure here makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, I kind of agree, but it won't be hard to disclose because there won't be a lot of ads that... uh, That's right. But speaking of disclosure, I mean, Meta's got a new rule for political advertiser where they have to disclose when an ad contains an image, a video, or an audio that has been created digitally or altered through electronic means. And again, it's, it's not a... That's not a bad idea. If the ad says, here's a real person, but he's saying or doing something he didn't really say or do, maybe you should notify people about that. Yeah, but what if you what if you just clean it up on uh, Photoshop, right? Yeah, that, that, there's an exclusion for adjustments that are inconsequential or immaterial. So you want to adjust the size, the color, you want to crop the image. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Um, but if you do it in a way that makes a difference, you've got to disclose that. And the way it's going to be enforced apparently is Meta attaches a notice to the ad indicating that it was digitally altered, but it does this only if the advertiser indicates that the ad has been altered. So it's a kind of self-certification process in the first instance. They say, you know, if we catch you not disclosing as required, well, then we'll reject the ad. And if you do it a lot, we'll give you some unspecified penalties, but it's it's in the first instance a, a piece of self-certification. I don't see that this is terribly controversial. I mean, think back to the RNC ad that they had against Biden when he launched his presidential campaign. It was created entirely with AI, and they disclosed it throughout the entire ad. So you, you, you knew right away that it was going to be the kind of thing that was artificial. By the way, th- this is not a get-out-of-jail-free card for uh, for political advertisers where they can do anything at all with AI as long as they disclose it. There are pre-existing rules about putting in place misleading or false ads still takes place. So if you edit the ad using AI in a way that could mislead people, that kind of ad isn't permitted. You're not allowed to just disclose it and do it anyhow right? because you're using AI. So they haven't changed that underlying policy. This is tricky because so many of the edits are obvious to most people, but maybe not to everybody. And then there's an incentive for people who don't like the ad to say, I was misled. I, you know, I, uh, I think this is, this is a false representation and you should take it down. 
So you'll get lots of politically motivated quasi litigation over this. Yeah, they're going to have to deal with enforcing this policy. It's going to be a mess. Yeah. All right. Speaking of messes, the FTC has decided that they are going to weigh in on copyright policy in AI. Adam, I don't know how often it's been that the FTC weighs in on copyright policy. We do have a copyright office that usually does copyright policy, but they really, uh, they filed comments with the copyright office about AI that were very lengthy and quite pointed. Yeah, it's probably not that common that executive branch agencies file comments with each other anyway. I mean, it happened a few times when I was in government, but it's not every day. Usually you're looking for public comments. And here, I think what people have found most interesting about the FTC comments are signaling that something might qualify as fair use for one purpose, but still amount to an unfair means of competition that they would look to enforce against under Section 5. And as I understand it, copyright disputes, the question about fair use are typically handled in the courts. And there's a common law of what qualifies as fair use. And in fact, the Supreme Court recently, I think, issued an interesting decision about that as recently as last term. So the thought that something, there might be another venue where a regulator may decide that your use of pirated or copyrighted or just openly available information to train your model or to generate content may in fact give them an opening to regulate you or bring an enforcement action. I think it's a new take on uh, authorities. And the language they use, they talked about AI using pirated content. It's clearly the kind of language you use if you think that the poor copyright owners have been abused and the people who did the copying or pirating are in the wrong. I tend to be skeptical about copyright. It's a hundred year monopoly on the content. And so you want to define the scope of that monopoly pretty carefully. But the FTC seemed to say, hey, we're all about monopolies and we're all about unfairness. And so if you've been unfair to these monopolists, uh, we're going to come for you. Yeah. I mean, it's good to remember fair use is a classic example of something that counters the monopoly of a copyright. I wonder if this is partly a reaction to how much of the civil litigation about scraping has gone, which is to say, not very well for the plaintiffs, if I'm keeping track correctly. Yeah, I think that's right. But it really shouldn't. You know, I don't get to bring copyright lawsuits against people who read my book and then talk about it on TV or write about it. And a lot of these complaints are AI read my book. And if you ask it what it says, it'll tell you. And you kind of say, well, yeah, so what? That's not a, that is what fair use is all about. So I think that you have to be viewing this as taking the temperature of the body politic about AI. And it's pretty clear that the FTC has decided that AI is bad and we're going to, we're going to make them pay. We'll figure out what they're paying for later. All right. Speaking of which, maybe they're paying for generating biased images. The Washington Post had this long article about how if you ask for certain kinds of images, you get images that are sort of stereotyped. You know, if you ask for Palestinian Arab boys, you might get somebody who has a gun and the like. I ended up thinking that it was an awfully lazy story to write. You can always do this. And what you want from AI images in particular is for the images to give you something that is typical, if not stereotypical, because that's what image search is usually aimed at, getting stuff where they look at it and they say, oh yeah, that's a Palestinian Arab boy. And that means you have to put in all the signifiers, which means you can be accused of stereotyping. Yeah, I'm going to push back a bit on that, I think. One, I liked the piece because it's pretty graphical. And so some of the examples are, show me an example of a a house in China, a house in India, and a house in the U.S. The house in the U.S. is a fairly unrealistic white picket fence. I mean, those houses exist, but they don't exist in the quantity in D.C. where I live, that it would be the typical house. And in China and in India, the Indian house was sort of a dusty, two-story, simple stone structure. I agree. I think if your point is this is kind of trivial and who cares what the house looks like, I get that. But the other examples were show me a productive person. And almost all, if not all of the images were white guys sitting behind a desk. Show me a pretty person. All young, pretty, and generally white people. 
show me someone at a welfare office, all persons of color. And so, okay, those are just images, but if the same technology is going to be used for influencing judgments that affect your life chances, like credit, criminal justice, housing, and so forth, job screening, then maybe you think a little bit more about this because it's the same model, it's the same judgment. So if it draws a picture that looks a certain way, why wouldn't we think that its recommendations wouldn't have some of the same biases? So I guess what I like about the story, it's it's a visual example of why people, I think, are appropriately concerned about things like explainability, transparency of how the model works, and ultimately having human judgments applied at the end of a decision-making process that really matters. Okay. Well, so I one of my problems with this is I actually have used image search to illustrate a story. And I think I was looking for members of the European Court of Justice, so I could make fun of them. And I asked for pictures of members of the European Court of Justice. And, you know, I got all of these uh, women and racial minorities, and I just know that they, that nobody on the European Court of Justice looks that way, or very few of them do. And if you put them in a picture for people and you're trying to persuade them that it's the European Court of Justice, you're actually going to have this moment of kind of a blank stare in which people don't realize what they're looking at. And I thought, you know, the reason I got all of those politically correct images is because somebody, I think this was being an image creator, has been attacked into ensuring that all of their image searches are carefully designed to achieve certain quotas, whether or not they're actually realistic depictions of the most obvious person that you would think of when you were trying to illustrate a story. So I I ended up feeling as though I was asked to wade through a whole lot of stories that everybody knew weren't going to be of much value just in order to satisfy the people who write stories like this. I mean, it seems like it's a factual question of who's on the European Court of Justice. I mean, I couldn't tell you, but I'm sure there's a, an annual shot, much like the Supreme Court. There probably Court, right? is. There probably is. And I have not called it up, but I was getting, you know, I think at least 25 to 50 percent uh, minorities and women. And I'm pretty confident uh, that uh, that is not representative of the Court of Justice So let's see, I've called them up and unfortunately they are not going to show me pictures. The pictures are too small to actually tell anything about the ethnicity, but boy, it's a sea of white. (laughs) I'm just not sure that the Bulgarian or the Polish judges that you could find a racial minority to put on the European Court of Justice. All right. Okay. Let's talk CISO liability. We covered this last week, but so many people have asked about this that I thought I'd give Kurt and Adam a chance to talk a little bit about the SolarWinds enforcement action going after SolarWinds and the guy who wasn't even the CISO when most of this happened, but who became the CISO, uh, Tim Brown with a very aggressive theory of what he did wrong and a pretty aggressive set of penalties. So, Kurt, you want to start us off? Sure, but before getting to the topic, I wanted to see if I could make a public service announcement for the Steptoe listeners. Mm-hmm. So, Steptoe listeners, if you are investing in public companies, please know that the networks they rely on may be vulnerable, and they may be subject to vulnerabilities that even the experts that monitor them are not aware of. Every system has red flags, and if you invest in them, those red flags may become a part of your problem with the with the share price later on. So, and that is a completely anodyne and therefore unacceptable warning. You actually have to go in and investigate the system and explain your particular problems, or you haven't met SEC standards. And with some of the actors that are putting their talents against these systems, they may not be able to discover all those vulnerabilities. Every system has red flags. Some of those red flags are discoverable. Some of them are not discoverable until after there's an incident. So there's a lot being asked in CISOs. Like much of the 
discussion over the past couple of weeks has been in the technical community. I think that ultimately this complaint will drive some subject matter experts away from CISO positions to the extent that they can do other things and ultimately might lead to less qualified individuals being the CISOs of companies that need better protection. Yeah, I think the SEC couldn't care less about that. This is about showing that they're the toughest guys in the room. But Adam, what do you think CISOs should be doing to protect themselves? Yeah, I think, you know, when I read the complaint, it's tough. You know, you've been telling CISOs for years to report up and to flag issues with networks so that there's visibility via management. That's a, that's a key part of governance. And at the same time, you're going to discourage that if the words, when you speak truth to power, come back to bite you in a, in a complaint or an enforcement action. So I think you have to create a process that formalizes how the CISO identifies risks and make the corporation responsible, not the CISO personally. I mean, I think what happened here is there's a judgment by the SEC to hold him accountable for what he wrote internally, or in many cases, what other people wrote. These might as well be Snapchat excerpts. Some of this stuff never even made it to him, did it? Well, that's, I did wonder about that. I can't tell from reading the complaint how much of that, you know, that opinion reflected common understanding within the company that he'd be aware of it, or if it's just someone writing in an isolated communication about it. Well, yeah, surely the SEC, if he has seen it, the SEC would have gone out of its way to say, and in another communication that he saw. So I think some of this stuff he never saw, but they got it because, you know, they have subpoena power. Well, that's relevant to charging the company, maybe, depending on the rank of those people. But I'm not sure how that will play against him if he didn't see it. I think what he saw and thought would probably be most relevant. You've got to create a process that maintains the incentive for CISOs to be candid and identify problems and then the decision about what to do about it and risk management can't only be on them. So don't you think that the carefully considered response to this, if you're a CISO, is never get an indication of a problem with the security of your system without passing it on to, to somebody above you? I think it definitely encourages that, yes. And then it's their problem. It's not going to be your problem. I do think that means just a massive amount of unfiltered stuff coming to the board of directors or the CEO. And stuff that's highly technical, where it remains a challenge to translate from technical information to actual risk assessment, what it means and where to make a judgment about investment or spend. So yes, I think that will be a challenge. Yeah. I'm guessing that the CEO will find ways and his lawyers will find ways to protect him from that sort of thing, although it's not clear to me what that is. I suspect one of the things that people will end up doing is creating what amount to hotlines in which they say, if there's a security problem that you're aware of and you think it requires the attention of the people above the CISO, you need to use this process. You need to submit this copy to the CISO. But if this has to go to somebody else, you need to tell us as a way of kind of forcing people not just to casually kvetch, but to, to decide what's important enough for the board or the CEO to be thinking about. And hopefully, if you're representing the company, you want something like that to do some filtering for you. And that's part of the environment that you build for your company is that everybody needs to know that they're part of cybersecurity as long as they have a device or a part of a, a system that the whole company is relying on. So CISOs ought to, you know, all of them are working with constrained resources. There's no such thing as perfect cybersecurity, but there's always better cybersecurity. And CISOs need to make the recommendations that they, the, for the type of system they want to have and when resources don't support that, they need to create the memo that says, I recommended this. The company decided, the leadership decided to do something different. I think the consequences of that decision may be this. However, I understand that you know, with the limited resources we have, we need to make trade-off decisions. Now, I think that's exactly what you do as a CISO. And it's bad for the company because you're basically making a record that they overrode your recommendation, as you kind of have to. But now that file becomes, you know, the only file the SEC needs to go to when they decide to bring them their next case. 
but maybe CEOs and COOs need to create a memo as well regarding why they made that resource decision. Yep. Okay. Lots and lots of memos. Not much more cybersecurity, but the lawyers will be fully employed and really what matters more than that. All right. A few quick hits and then turn to Mark and his book. There's been a couple of articles or reports worth reading out of the House of Representatives talking about weaponization of disinformation efforts, basically taking the Twitter files stories and turning them into House reports. They did have subpoena authority. They did use it against the Stanford Internet Observatory. They did get more stuff, and it was more embarrassing for Stanford and the people who were feeding disinformation claims to the social media. So it's definitely worth reading. And if you haven't already made up your mind, you'll have some uneasy moments about the extent to which disinformation became a label for don't say things that the Clinton and Biden campaigns won't like. So I was surprised by some of what it was being passed on in the tip line or the JIRA tickets as qualifying as disinformation, not where I think FBI or DOJ would have been focused. But I think the government and the FBI in particular has completely over-rotated on this. Yes. I, mean, I understand that there is a... Now they're afraid to say anything. Correct. And even, even the district court's injunction, which has stayed, right, while the Supreme Court takes a look at this, even that injunction allows for of core activities of sharing cybersecurity threat indicators and identifying foreign sources of speech, right, that are masquerading as American voices. So this whole debate about what, if any, role the government, federal government should play in flagging U.S. speech to the platforms is, is, is a debate worth having and maybe not at all. Maybe it depends on the topic. But the article I read indicated the FBI hasn't talked to a social media company in months and that that structure of regular communication has been entirely taken down and a Justice Department lawyer, which probably would have been me if I were still there, has to read whatever whatever they want to say. That doesn't seem like the right approach heading into a presidential election year. I take your point, but boy, you know, talk about over-rotation. This was just sort of a an interesting idea in April of 2020. And by the end of the year, it was just being jammed out. Everybody who expressed a view that wasn't in accord with the incoming Biden administration was just slammed. And so the inability of the people who were engaged in this to titrate their work with common sense was so staggering. that The idea of going back in there and saying, no, no, if you titrate it properly, if you just go after the Russians and the Chinese and the North Koreans and the Iranians, trying to influence our election. We don't want that. We should stop it. I'm not sure I have as much confidence as I would have had, you know, a year ago that that they're going to do that right. Well, you might distinguish your alma mater from mine. In other words, I think the DHS owned this project uh, and FBI <laughs> did not. But the second point I'd make is, I mean, some of what's being flagged, let's be clear, it's not merely political opinions, right? It's guidance on how to vote on a different day or, or misinformation about how to vote, right? I mean, I, I'm not too sympathetic that that political belief, quote unquote, ought not be flagged for a company, right? I mean, the, the premise of this was that state and locals would have a switchboard to call to say, hey, we're seeing content that's misleading people about how to vote. I distinguish that from even allegations of voter fraud or the like, because I think one is clearly actually provable or not, and the other is you know, is more debatable, at least without more speech. Well, yeah, I might be more inclined to accept your view, except that in my family, I have had a running joke with all my other family members who are all good Democrats, in which the day before the election, I send them emails that says, you know, you want to be really careful. It's time to make up your mind about how to vote because you've only got a week to make up your mind. And I haven't fooled any of them. And frankly, I don't think a lot of people were fooled by these things. And I think the Justice Department's decision to criminalize a joke like that is just, uh, I think this is the Eastern District, which is sort of like the Southern District's crazier wingman. I don't understand why they are prosecuting that case, but. All right. So I think we agree on where it would be useful to do this. It's just, it's going to be very hard. 
after it's been, um, what was the uh, the story about Casey Stengel, who was working with an infielder shortstop, and the shortstop wasn't fielding grounders properly, and Stengel says, I, I'll go out there. Let me show you how to do this. He goes out there, he gets down, and the first ball hits a stone and jumps up and hits him in the throat. And he stands up, throws down his glove, and says, God damn it, you've screwed that position up so bad, nobody can play it. And and I, I fear that what, that's what's happened here, is this beat has been rendered toxic, and it means that we are going to see a lot more foreign governments getting away with trying to influence yep. our election. That I agree with. All right. Okay, let's see. Oh, yes, yeah. more election news. So this is just an update. Everybody, I'm sure, remembers that there was a candidate for election in Virginia running as a Democrat who did most of her fundraising by begging people to send her money so that she could do more on-camera sex with her husband. And so she was performing various sex acts on requests in exchange for funds. Remarkably, she did not win her election, but even more remarkably, it was really close. <laughs> so for those of you who have been following this story, I'm afraid that's the last Susanna Gibson story we'll get to do on the Cyberlaw podcast. And one more alumni news, Chris Krebs, Alex Stamos, their group has been purchased by Sentinel One. So when they come out to do the podcast next, I'm expecting them to come by private jet. So it will be great to have them. And then we're starting to finally see some actual legislative moves on 702. Uh, unfortunately, this one's not a bill that anybody who wants 702 to succeed can get behind. It's a widened bill. Mike Lee, I think, might have joined it too. Andy Biggs. So it, it has some left-right bipartisan credentials. Not that much. I don't think that there's a big bunch of people joining it because... It includes everything that the law review law faculty left has asked for here. They want probable cause and warrants in order to do 702 searches and to do searches in any other form of intelligence, including intelligence gathered abroad. If you're looking for information that might have an American in it, you've got to go through that process. It's just a killer for intelligence. And not content to do that, they also added in a prohibition on buying data that anybody else in the world, including the Chinese intelligence services, can buy if you're an American agency, and on and on. So it's a, it's a wish list for the left and for a few people on the right. We'll see some more hopefully this week. I wouldn't be surprised if a couple, at least one, maybe two intelligence committee bills come down. And we're all waiting to see what the House Judiciary Committee does. So we're starting to actually get concrete proposals on 702 and what intelligence reform might look like. Hopefully the intelligence bills will be a little more realistic. So I think that's everything. And we can just jump into the interview. Mark, your book, Regulating Digital Industries, How Public Oversight Can Encourage Competition, Protect Privacy, and Ensure Free Speech. A chicken in every pot, sounds like. I read a big chunk of it. I did not get to finish it. I would say there are three main elements to it. How to regulate monopolization and dominance and network effects. How to regulate use of personal data and how to regulate what you call the failure of social media to engage in sufficient content moderation. And then, because this is Washington, a deep dive on exactly how would we set up a regulatory commission that could actually do this. And I said in, the, in my note to you that uh, you could blurb this because my blurb would be, this is an entertaining, articulate, and well-researched book that is egregiously wrong on almost every page. And your solution to that was to, to take the first half of the quote and say, why don't I just use that? I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about especially the solutions that you see and the need for a solution on monopolization. In particular, we've got plenty of organization. We've got two agencies that deal with monopolization. You're <laughs> suggesting we need a third that focuses just on digital monopolization. And I wanted to get a feel for why you think that's necessary and how you think 
an expert agency or a specialized agency would overcome problems that you see today. Yeah, thanks. I loved your blurb, although based on an earlier conversation, I think a revised blurb would be hated by Stuart Baker. Yes, that's right. That that might sell more books, yes. (laughs) Which which might really get the, the people rushing to the bookstores to buy it. So what do we need, you know, a new agency, especially in the antitrust area for we already have one? I think to see that go back to the what the Congress tried to do in the previous Congress and what the European Union is doing with their pro-competitive stuff and what the UK is trying to do as well. The approach that they took was largely one of trying to promote competition through specific regulatory requirements whether those requirements are uh, data portability or interoperability or a ban on, on self-preferencing, the idea was you would put in place a series of rules and regulations that would be aimed at promoting competition, which is different from the, the standard antitrust approach, which is break them up to find wrongdoing. And when you find wrongdoing, you go to court, prove a failure of a company to live up to the competition mandates, and then try to seek a remedy to stop them from doing it again. So it's a very different approach. The way the the U.S. tried to do it, though, is by giving that responsibility to the Federal Trade Commission and to say, in addition to your regular antitrust responsibilities, you now have a new role. Your new role is to act as a kind of sector-specific antitrust agency with a mandate to promote competition in that sector of the economy. That's not a bad result for a first approach. And in fact, if you look at the other things that I think need to get done, privacy and content moderation, that's sort of the way the Congress reacted to those requirements as well. They, they said to the Federal Trade Commission, you should be the enforcer for privacy rules. And they said to the FTC, you should be the enforcer for new transparency rules and content moderation. So sort of by accident, the the Congress is saying, you know, FTC, you're our digital regulator in those three areas. That's not a bad result, I don't think, because it puts enforcement of these three different areas of policymaking in the same administrative unit. And I think you need that in order to balance some of the, the synergies and tensions. But long-term, I'm not sure that's the the right solution. What you really need long-term is an agency that's more like the Federal Communications Commission, an agency that really is focused just on a particular sector of the economy and responsible for protecting the public interest within that sector. The FTC is a law enforcement agency with an economy-wide scope. And so ultimately, I think you're going to need to spin off the digital responsibilities to a separate agency. Remember that the FCC, its chairman once said, yeah, we're the agency in charge of nagging monopolists. They didn't actually cure monopolization, but they made them feel bad about it. They they did a couple of things in monopolization, which I mean, for one thing, they had a whole range of regulatory requirements designed to limit monopolies in broadcasting. They had cross ownership rules, they had national ownership rules, they had local ownership rules, They even had rules saying you can't merge with Hollywood Studios, which they ultimately repealed. So they did a lot of stuff on promoting competition in broadcasting, and they were the lead agency to promote competition in telecommunications. Right. It's just, in the end, it failed. The economy swamped most of those bulwarks for a variety of reasons. I think that's right. But, you know, we, we don't have much chance at all of promoting competition in the digital world without having an agency on top of the process. Yeah, so I I see what you're saying. I actually feel that it would be great if we could find ways to break up some of these Silicon Valley giants who have been abusing their control of speech in ways that I find profoundly obnoxious. But because it's uh, network effects that allow these companies to run their monopolies, we're not going to be able to undo network effects with clever little fixes like, you know, no foreign ownership. And so that does push you in the direction of saying, well, maybe I can come up with some regulatory things to say, you have to do it this way. And that will create a little sort of special chamber in which competition occurs. Yeah. I mean, but remember how you tried to get competition in telecom? 
That's right. You had interconnection requirements, you had access requirements, you had a whole range of regulatory tools designed to jumpstart and maintain competition. That's the kind of thing you need to try in a digital world. That's what data portability and interoperability are all about. You want to keep the advantages of network effects, but allow multiple companies to be engaged in the game. And that's what interoperability does. So my concern, I, 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 don't, I don't know, Stuart, if it's going to work. I mean, yeah. I think it's a real chance to give it a shot and see if you can get as far as you, as you think you can with these tools. And if it doesn't work, then you're stuck with a monopoly and the job switches. And instead of the job being to force competition into an unwilling industry, the job becomes making sure the monopolist doesn't abuse dependent businesses and consumers. At bottom, it seems to me what you are doing and what a lot of the new thinking in this area is doing is rejecting 40 years of Robert Bork. I'm happy to accept that is what I'm up to. Sure. You know, we made a wrong turn back at the end of the Carter administration, the beginning of the Reagan administration in deregulating and relying on the ability to bring monopoly cases to prevent abuse. But I remember that era and I remember what it was like to live with regulated industries in the 60s and the 70s. And they were perfectly obnoxious. You paid four times what you would pay for a, an airline ticket today or a bus ticket. Everything was more expensive because of regulation. And the regulations seem to be protecting somebody other than me or an ordinary consumer. I just think that we have failed to, in our enthusiasm to get rid of the Bork school, we are at risk of reinstating some of the worst excesses of the regulatory state. And to my mind, one of the ideas, the idea that we can regulate our way to antitrust solutions by saying, well, we can't fix network effects, so we'll write a regulation that sounds like it creates competition. We're going to end up with regulatory capture over those proposals. We're going to end up with a bunch of experts reflecting their own personal lefty views in the regulations and then instantiating them in something they call a consent decree, but which is really just a bespoke regulation. I feel as though we're buying into regulation in an effort to solve the monopoly problem, and it's not going to work. We're just going to end up with a lot more regulation. Well, we, we had 40 years to try to let this other way of doing things play out, and you saw what it's given us. It's given us monopolies. It's given us invasion of privacy. It's given us information disorder, which is really a disgrace. And, and so I think you go back to the way we used to do things in the country before the Reagan and Bork revolution took place in the 1980s, which is when you see a new technology that is going to be something useful and important for the public, what you do is get out in front of it and try to put in place a regulatory structure that guides it and protects the public at the same time. That's how we did things for airlines. It's how we do still do things for pharmaceuticals. For every major new technology that came along before the 1980s, that's how we chose to introduce the new technology into the country. And the good news is that when people are thinking now about artificial intelligence, instead of saying, oh, the world would be a better place if we never touched that stuff and let Silicon Valley develop it any way we want, the consensus seems to be that we have to throw a regulatory structure around it. Now, you can do that in a stupid way or you can do that in a clever way. But the idea that we do nothing, that regulatory agencies are just an instrument for regulatory capture, that's gone away. And that's good news. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's right. I actually think maybe this is an illusion of mine, that there was a coherent philosophy born out of the New Deal, mainly, and the progressive movement about how to regulate in the public interest and when you did it and when there were market failures and the scope of the, the regulatory effort you were making. And what I see now is regulation by who are the people we consider the evil villains in the cartoon policy debate that we're having. So I'm mad at AT&T. So let's have net neutrality. We'll just jam net neutrality down the throat of the phone companies without any sense that there's 
some deep thought about how one regulates in that area. And so I fear that regulation will become even more likely, maybe because the good guys and the bad guys are so now associated with particular parties, that we'll just see a lot more abuse of regulatory authority to implement what the base of the particular party that holds power wants to see done. So I fear that we're launching a regulatory revolution on the assumption that we're bringing back the New Deal. And in fact, we're just bringing back Peronism. <laughs> well, I don't mind bringing back the New Deal. In fact, one of my mentors to whom I dedicate the book was John D. Dingell from Michigan, who ran the Energy and Commerce and, and for And who used to be my congressman. He was a bully. <laughs> a wonderful bully. He was a bully in the public interest. Oh, well, okay. Every every regulatory agency in the country was afraid of him and they, because they would get these messages from him saying, why aren't you protecting the public interest? So he, he was a real defender of the idea that industries need to be guided and focused to protect the public interest. And the way to do that is the mechanism of a regulatory agency. I think that's the right idea. Regulatory agencies make a difference in the way industries behave. I worked in broadcasting, I worked in finance, and I represented companies in the tech industry. And believe me, they behave very, very differently. It's not as though they don't make money. I mean, financial institutions made a ton of money. Broadcasters made a ton of money. But they had an eye focused on the public interest every single second. Yeah. When you went to their business meetings, people would say, your job is to protect the public interest. And if, the, if you don't do it properly, the federal communications is going to come after us. So that made a difference in the way people behave. The tech industry has none of that. For them, every form of government regulation is an affront. Now, I, I agree with you uh, that, that they say, how can we get these guys out of our business or what do we have to do to buy them off? There isn't a sense that there's some long-term consensus about the, what's acceptable behavior and what's not. I wonder whether in our current climate, you can say there is a durable bipartisan assessment of what is responsible and irresponsible behavior on the part of corporations. You got the beginning of that in the last Congress with movement towards privacy, with movement towards pro-competition bills, with movement on content moderation bills. It was bipartisan. It wasn't just Democrats or Republicans. So I think there was that. I think it died in the current Congress, and it's going to have to be revived. But these kind of reform efforts never take place over a single Congress. It takes years to get the job done. And I think I'm an optimistic guy about these kind of things. I think that bipartisan consensus will come to the fore in the coming years. All right. It is actually a book that our listeners will very much find rewarding even if they disagree with it, as I often do. There's a lot here. It's Mark McCarthy, Regulating Digital Industries, How Public Oversight Can Encourage Competition, Protect Privacy, and Ensure Free Speech. It is really up to date. And you're, I won't say you're fair to the other side, but you acknowledge the other side's best points. So although I thought you made a, said a lot of things I disagreed with, there was plenty in there that I thought was the beginning of wisdom on your part. Thanks very much. And I, I will use your uh, your stuff in my blurbs. <laughs> okay, please do. All right, Mark, thank you. Adam and Kurt, thank you for joining us as well. Uh, for our listeners, if you've got any comments, cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com is where to send them. I'm actually thinking, you know, if, you're, if you've gotten this far, we're on 481 of the podcast. 500 is a nice round number. And it raises the question, should there be a 501? What should it be like? How can the podcast grow and change and in particular enable me to have more time on the weekend? So I am actually thinking a lot about what the structure and future of the podcasts should be. And I would be glad to hear from anybody who has ideas on that. Should we take advertising? I, you know, uh, then I could, I could pay people to do parts of this stuff. Uh, should we become a Patreon so that I can nag you until you contribute? None of that is entirely attractive. Although I will say, I listen to the Naked Scientist podcast, which is a BBC thing, and they are wholly sponsored by a prophylactic company that makes a long, long pitch about how they use, I think, 
graphene in their uh, prophylactics, making it far more sensitive and heat conductive. And it's just wonderful. So, you know, there are sponsors I would consider, I suppose. Anyway, I look forward to hearing from anybody who's gotten this far in the podcast about what the future of the podcast ought to be. This has been episode 481 of the CyberLaw Podcast. definition, Facebook is only used by people that nobody wants to see naked. <laughs> <laughs>